Hello, everyone. I'm Philip Mead. And I'm Scott Stigmeyer. And I'm Danny Webb. And this is The Blackest Eyes, a place for intelligent conversation about horror movies. This is our second episode of Season 1, where we are watching and discussing movies related to exorcisms. Last time we discussed a movie that transcends the horror genre, The Exorcist. And today we are discussing The Exorcist 3. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter for all the relevant updates, and of course, make sure you are subscribed to us through your favorite podcast catcher. So, if you're ready to get into the mind of the Gemini Killer and Exorcist 3, then stick with us. Here we go. Right, guys here we are episode two of season one we had a blast last time i think we're going to have just as much fun today but let me check in with you all real quick how are things going danny what's happening in eastern kentucky everything okay with you everything going fine uh, still dealing obviously with uh covid trying to figure out how going back to school works like so many other states are doing and uh every day it seems like we change what's going to happen so i'm just riding it out yeah it does seem like a daily a daily grind to see what the new new is new news is what about you scott what's happening yeah so i'm out here in southern california and california right now um with covid is pretty much all locked down and our governor just said last week that all schools in the particular counties including orange county where i live all schools k through 12 public and private have to start online fully online no hybrid yeah. no and we're not sure what that's going to do for us because we're we're a college, but you know we're prepared to maybe have to begin the school year entirely online again. I just saw an article right before we jumped on for the podcast, and there is a school system here, I guess in Franklin County, where the state capital is, that uh, they're doing 100% virtual to begin as well. Up to that point, they've been kind of been leaving it up. Uh, to the schools, to the teachers, to the parents. You got one of three options. You can keep them at home all the time, or you can send them to the school, or you can do a hybrid of those kinds of things. But it looks like now they've decided they're going to go 100% virtual at the beginning of the year and see what happens from there. It's just, it's just a, it's a mess. No one really knows what's going on. The teachers are scared. The kids are confused. So it's pretty wild. But we're here to talk about horror movies, and in particular, Exorcist Three. And so we're going to need to get a plot summary of this thing going just to make sure we're all on the same page to know what's going on. And I think, Danny, you have volunteered to do that. So tell us about The Exorcist 3. Okay, and you guys can fill in any blanks I leave out here. Um, so The Exorcist 3 picks up um, years later, 16 years later, I believe, uh, from the original film. It kind of is just a direct continuation from the original film pretending that Exorcist 2 did not exist, as many people do. Uh, it follows Kinderman, the police officer from the first film, uh, this time played by George C. Scott, and played brilliantly by George C. Scott. Um, and he is in the middle, the, the city is in the middle of um, a string of murders, which are mimicking the murders of a, the famous Gemini killer. Uh, who supposedly died uh, in the electric chair and is no longer alive, but is now they're getting murders in the town that are uh, um, in Washington D.C. that that mimic uh, that that uh, repeat the the crimes of Gemini Killer in a way that uh, normal people wouldn't have known. They have the traits of the crimes that they kept hidden from the public um, during the course of the investigation. He discovers a patient at a mental hospital that appears to be um, Father Damien from the original Exorcist, and things play out from there. Is that it, you think? 
Yeah, yeah, sounds good. So I'm, what we end up seeing here, you know, it, it looks like the person that's in the cell looks like Father Karras, Damien Karras, very strong resemblance. But the voice is saying that it's actually the Gemini killer. And what we end up finding out through a pretty long conversation, right, is that the Gemini killer, when he was electrocuted, his soul ended up coming into the body of Father Karras as Father Karras was dying uh, when he fell down the steps and that brutal end to the original movie, The Exorcist. And so now it appears that both the soul of Father Karras and the Gemini killer inhabit Father Karras's body. This creates um, theological implications that are just mind-numbing that we can talk about as, you know, what happens after, after death and the soul and the exorcisms and possessions and what that looks like. And at one point, the Gemini killer says that Father Karras just has to helplessly watch as he is mutilating and killing and doing all the things to innocent people, right? And so it's, it's very, very disturbing. And then from there, Kinderman begins to put the pieces together, who he himself was doubting that all this was even true. Uh, but he begins to put the pieces together and realizes that, in fact, there is something truth. Uh, there's some truth to this exorcism thing and, and possession thing. I think one of the most interesting things is how they chose to visualize that duality of the Gemini killer and patient X mm-hmm. by actually having different actors, you know, so Brad Dorif is the voice of the Gemini killer, is the face of the Gemini killer. It's Brad Dorif on screen when the Gemini killer, and then when the Gemini killer is subsumed in the body, it is Jason Miller, the actor who played Father Damon in the first movie. Really, really neat. Yeah, so let's just give impressions on the film overall. Scott, we'll start with you. This is your first time viewing the film. Did you watch it just today? That's normally your routine. Yeah, I. Uh, it's, it's actually the second time I've seen it. I saw it a long time ago, and I oh, okay. rewatched it today, which is good because I, you know, didn't remember a whole lot. Um, so I did rewatch it. I've read the novel in the past, so I'm a little bit familiar. I was already a little bit familiar. I like watching the movie the same day we talk because then it's just super fresh. Yeah. Now you're, but you asked impressions, so I may not give it quite as high marks as you two guys. Almost always, it seems, whenever we podcast, we pretty much agree um, in terms of our impressions of the movie. But I, it seems like maybe you guys liked it a little more. It, it, I didn't dislike it. I, there were some really strong elements to it, but I, I maybe didn't like it quite as much as I think you guys did. Yeah, so flesh that out a little bit. What were some elements of it that fell short for you? Well, you know, I hate to even say it because um, for me, a weakness, and and it was kind of a big weakness, I didn't care for George C. Scott's performance. Hmm. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, contradict Danny, but we may just have seen it a little differently. I, I usually like George C. Scott, but, you know, to me, he felt stiff. He felt uncommitted. I thought Brad Dourif, who played the Gemini Killer Soul guy, I, I mean, he was brilliant. And he's always really good, that actor. He's kind of weird and plays weird roles. But he's super, super convincing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So there are some really great performances. But I felt let down, personally, by George C. Scott. I just didn't feel like he was all there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just, Danny. Yeah, yeah that's fair enough. Uh, I actually, I do, this is in my top. 10 horror films of all time. And it's actually been one that, you know, it got terrible reviews when it came out. It, it, it got mocked and, you know, parodied a lot uh, in the early days. And it's one that has kind of got rediscovered by the horror community, but I've been an evangelist for it the whole time. I've always thought it was one of the, the best exorcism type movies. Uh, and I do, and I, I actually can see, and certainly a lot of people agree with Scott uh, about uh, George C. Scott's performance here. I love it. I think it's phenomenal. I think he went, uh, I can see where it seems like he's phoning in. He is, his, his character, he's made Kinderman incredibly apathetic because of all the pain he has seen. And it, and he's also incredibly theatrical and he's quoting all these operas and plays and Shakespeare. And, um, and, and he, he's, he's a very odd character. He, he kind of reminded me of uh, some of the police officers from, uh, from, from, 
detective fiction that are like older and ready to retire and they're just you know sort of phoning in their their job uh, but i really like the performance but i also think for me this is one of the scariest of horror films like it always gets me more than almost any film and films very rarely scare me at this point obviously since we've seen thousands of horror films and know all the tropes and all that but this film always gets under my skin and i think part of that is because i really do like the George C. Scott character, Kinderman and, and Father Dyer. I just, I like all of the performances and I can relate to the characters. Yeah. So I agree, Scott, Brad Dorff's portrayal of the Gemini killer right from the very first word that he speaks was so engaging and captivating, very, very convincing in that performance. I agree with you. That was, that was incredible. Yeah. I think for me, George C. Scott's performance was, I saw his character as someone who was past his prime, loves his job, doesn't really want to let go of it. Almost feels like there's a responsibility to hang in there, even for Father Dyer. At the beginning of the film, they say they get together on the anniversary of Father Karras' death in order to cheer the other one up. They both say that about the other one. They clearly love each other, even though they have one of those relationships where it seems like they don't. And I love that little speech that George C. Scott gives about the carp in the bathtub. It just shows his personality, this hard-edged cop. He's probably seen it all. He, he's reached a point where he doesn't even really necessarily care. He's going to do his job. And yet this particular series of killings pulls him back in. You know, he reminds me a little bit. You remember the movie Falling Down with uh, uh, Michael Douglas? Right, and sure. The, the cop in that film was so beautifully played by one of the greatest actors of all time. I can't remember his name right now. What was the guy's name? Remember? Don't know. You don't remember? I don't remember. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember who the cop was. Was it Ed, was Ed Harris the cop? No, it wasn't Ed Harris. Uh, I haven't I mean, seen this that film really since sad. it came out. It's truly one of the like all-time... Robert Duvall was oh, the cop. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, Prendergast and so he you know he's basically retiring in that movie and it's like but then he gets pulled back in because of this character that seems like he is the only one that really understands him he's the really only one that can relate to the Michael Douglas character and that's the way I felt a little bit about Kinderman in this movie if he's not going to do it who is no one else is going to have the connection with Dyer and the original story and the original case and all that kind of stuff so it, it, that wasn't a problem to me. The one thing that I listed as maybe problematic about the film is, you know, it sometimes is said that whenever you have a movie where there is an extended discourse between two or more people in order to ensure that the viewer understands what's happening in the movie, or that it's a sign of weakness in the movie. Now, whether or not I think that's a universal rule we could debate. I think it probably depends more on the movie and on the context and so forth. But there can be no doubt that Kinderman and the Gemini Killer have very long conversations in order to help the viewer understand the complexities of what's happening with Father Karras and the Gemini Killer and Karras's body and how they're, how all of this happened and how someone else can be committing the murders even though he's still in his cell. You know, if, if those conversations didn't happen, we may be scratching our head a little bit trying to figure out what in the world's taking place in this movie. But the scene was so well done. Uh, the, the, the cell, the, the two windows at the top, the light coming down, shining on both of them as they're sitting on opposite sides of the room. To me, it wasn't as big of a distraction or a weakness of the film as it might otherwise be when you see two people talking for 10 minutes in order to help you know what in the world's going on. Your guys thought about that scene. It works for me because, again, I think Brad Dorf carries it. He... he he changes his his um, uh, tempo. He you know rises and falls. He's he's just really into it, and it's just convincing. I'm following every single word that comes out of this guy's mouth, and yeah, he is putting the narrative together. And I can see where that could be criticized, but I he just brought me in. I was totally engaged in everything he was saying. That actor in general, I find um, always really good. But um, yeah, so it didn't bother me. I actually thought that was a just because of him, it was a strength. Hmm. Yeah, those are my favorite scenes in the movie. I mean, I I, I love the this film's very theatrical. It's it, it feels almost like a you know a filmed play 
uh, and that's probably one of the things that was off-putting for some people. But you know, those those exposition-heavy dialogue scenes did not bother me in the way they would in other movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe they should, but they do not. Yeah, no, they didn't me either. Even though as I was watching it, I was saying to myself, "This should bother me, right?" <laughs> because it, normally when this happens in a movie, I chalk it up. I've said this before a couple of times on the podcast, but. One of my top five movies is Psycho, but the ending is weak, right? Because it takes 10 minutes for the guy to tell us actually what just happened, which is not normally a way that you want the action, the narrative to be explained to you. So, but again, yeah, it, it just didn't bother. And in that scene, was it just me? I mean, you alluded to it just now, Scott, about he went up and down, but were there actually different voices coming from Brad? That's what I thought. I thought either he is really good at changing, you know, going really deep with his voice and then at other times just sounding like he's manic. I don't know if he if if that was really him. It sounded to me like it could be even another actor. Yeah, even when it's Jason Miller's face, uh, uh, Jason Miller seems to be doing a, a, a bit of that, too. It might have been manip- either another actor, manipulated audio. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he definitely I mean, Dorf's amazing in this. Absolutely. And I think this might have been the first film I noticed him in. He cracked me up at one point where he said, you know, he's describing what he's doing, his murders and all this and and how he's, well, it seems like he's possessing other people and they're doing this. And he uses the phrase, it's child's play, Lieutenant. Isn't Brad Dourif the guy from the child's play movies? He is. At least some of them. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that that kind of cracked me up. Let's talk about the, you mentioned that it was one of the scarier films you've seen, Danny. Let's talk about that a second in terms of the impact on us as we were watching it. Did it scare you? You know, for me, there's two elements going on here. There were some genuine scares. One one scene in particular we'll talk about in a minute that's one of the best scenes I've seen in a horror movie in forever. But for me, pastorally, for, I'm a pastor, pastor of a Baptist church. And so this movie makes me think about multiple layers from just the underlying premise of what's happening with the possession. Again, I, I want to get to that. But anytime I see images uh, of Christ being used in ways that they were being used in this movie, it's always a little bit unsettling. Not in the sense that I'm offended or, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw some big protest for movies that use crucifixes and show Jesus opening in his eyes and things like this. No, 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 that's not what I mean. But it's just always unsettling for me because this is my life, right? This is, this is what I do. And The Exorcist 3 used some of those images in some of the most disturbing ways. And it starts right at the beginning of the film when it's showing the inside uh, of the cathedral. Uh, so I thought it was scary for me, both in shock value, there were some great scenes, but also just in that unsettling nature for me that may not impact other viewers the same way that it might uh, impact me. Danny, your thoughts on the, the scare factor? What made it scary to you? For me, it was the fact that no character felt safe. Uh, I think horror films work best when the viewer thinks any single person could die. And especially once they kill off uh, the priest, you're like, there's no chance that anyone's going to live through this movie. Mm-hmm. Like this sweet face, nice guy, Father Dyer is just this wonderful dude. And, uh, and he gets gets killed in the most violent, well, not violent, I guess. Maybe this it's kind of antiseptic, but, you know, beheaded and his blood all drained and put into neat little containers. And, uh, it's, um, you know, so all bets are off at that point that, that anyone is under threat. So I felt, you know, a constant sort of dread that the characters were going to die. Again, most of them actually do. (laughs) And Scott for you. Yeah. You know, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but George C. Scott just took me out of it um, a few times. So, so I don't, I love this. There are, I would say three scenes where I really felt um, scared and and one of them of course I think we're going to talk about which is was super super good I, you know outstanding but as a whole in general I just I yeah I it took me out of the moment except when Brad Dorf was talking so I, it was it scary yes and no yeah it's very hard to work up uh, any kind of sense of dread or fright when you know something's knocking your uh, 
you know, suspension of disbelief away. I yeah. definitely, definitely see that. Yeah, but that, but I don't want to beat a dead horse either here, but at the beginning of the podcast, you, you raised what you almost weren't even going to talk about, you know, until I asked you specifically, you know, I hate to say it, but it probably maybe George C. Scott, I'm not sure. And now you're saying, well, the movie wasn't even scary because George C. Scott was so awful. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, it seems like this was a pretty major problem for you then in the well, film. Is it, that fair yeah, to say? And, and, and when I said I didn't want to bring it up, it was only because just a few seconds earlier, Danny had said that he thought George C. Scott was brilliant. And I didn't well, but that, want but to. But isn't that that's viewer well, of course, response, though, right? Of, of course, I mean, of course, of course. So, but that's what I meant is that I did. You know, I I wasn't trying to you know contradict him or whatever. I just so I I downplayed it. But now <laughs> I'm I'm stating it outright. It took me it took me out of the picture a few times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, that's so hard to overcome. If yeah. in a, a horror film. When, when you lose that suspension of disbelief and something is knocking you out of that magic circle or whatever you want to think of it as, it's very difficult for a fright to happen. And, and I think because of, of because of all of our histories, that often just our, our knowledge of tropes and the fact that we've seen everything automatically yeah. causes that to happen. So it's kind of rare that I'm able to throw that away like I can for this film. Except you're not throwing it away from this film, right? You thought the performance yeah. was really oh, good. Oh, right, right. But uh, I, I'm saying that I'm throwing away you know, the tropiness and stuff. Like, like uh, This is one of the few horror films where I can completely suspend my disbelief, build that sense of dread. Um, you know, the, the, the George T. Scott performance doesn't throw me off at all, certainly. There's yeah. only a handful of films that I even describe to my students as scary at this point. This is, this is one of them for me for some reason. Scott, from the pastoral perspective, anything that I was mentioning earlier, does that ever resonate with you or unsettling for you, or do you not have those kinds of issues when you see these kinds of films? No, I, I do, because, um, you know, there was that scene right at the beginning when there, it's in the church, and, you know, it's clearly some evil presence has come in in the form of wind, and, you know, the candles flicker, and there's a close-up of this image of Jesus hanging on the cross, and it's a wooden cro- wooden crucifix, and his eyes open. I even wrote that down. That it's like, ah, eh, you know, I could have done without that. But what I would say, being a Lutheran uh, pastor, is that I actually what I liked about one of the things I liked about this movie, as well as Exorcist, the original, is that the clergy are not idiots. Yes. The clergy are not buffoons or hypocrites. You know, they and in this movie, you know, toward the beginning, Father Dyer is saying mass. And um, and I think in The Exorcist, they had um, uh, Karis images of him saying mass. And, you know, there is the one priest, Father Mourning, in this movie who comes in to do an exorcism on Karis and dies. Doing So, I mean, the priests are, are portrayed sympathetically. And for me, as a clergyman, I find that to be really kind of nice. I appreciate it. Yeah, we discussed that at length on The Exorcist, uh, how the faith itself is taken very seriously. And, mm-hmm. and, of course, that comes a lot from Blatty, doesn't it? Because he takes yeah. it very seriously. And uh, he doesn't allow that to go in a direction that so often it would go, especially today when there's skepticism on faith. Father Morning, you just mentioned, played by Nicole Williamson. I just have to say very quickly, uh, because th- these kinds of connections are so fun to me, as soon as he came on the scene... I said, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. It's Dr. Eric Mason. And you guys don't know who that is. But Dr. Eric Mason is from a very famous Columbo episode in 1978. (laughs) That's great. I I know him as a villain, as a murderer who ruthlessly killed this guy using his dogs. And uh, here he's playing a very important priest who basically saves the day. So (laughs) that was, but he's got those eyes, you know, that kind of has a, really menacing look to him i thought which is pretty cool yeah he's familiar to me from something uh but this whole film like was just loaded with character actors that were recognizable uh nancy fish who played nurse allerton i just i found her threatening from the for the entire movie like and she wasn't even supposed to be i don't believe but uh she's got a look of someone who could kill you for sure yeah Okay, let's talk about before we get to the the scariest movie scene of all time. Maybe let's let's talk about the the theology of this movie for just a minute. 
Yeah, this was fascinating to me. So the way that I described it earlier is I think the way the film portrays it and the way that uh, the Gemini killer talks about it, which is that when Karis fell down the steps and he was dying, and you'll remember in the original movie, Father Dyer is reading him or is giving him the, the, the last rites, and he's, he's dying, right? So at that moment, um, what traditional, well, Protestant belief for sure, but Catholic belief would say that the soul then is going to depart from the body and will go to purgatory at that point. It's very, very rare that someone would just go immediately to uh, paradise or to heaven. There's always going to be some sense of sin that has not been repented of or still has to be accounted for, and there's going to be a certain amount of time of purgatory. Maybe a priest, you know, there's, there's some questions here. But the point is that the soul goes to a place where there is an afterlife, right? But what's happening here is that when the Gemini killer dies in the electric chair, instead of going to a place of separation from God, which we would assume since he was a serial killer, he goes, instead of going to hell, the soul then is taken by the master, who, which by the way, let me just interject here, did you take the master to be the devil or to be the the demon from the exorcist i took it to be was it pizazu from the exorcist yeah. that's why that's how okay is that what you thought scott i no i have a little different take on this whole thing i thought it was um the devil but go ahead and finish and i'll give you my thought on it later okay so then at that point he comes in to father Karis's body and he says that he climbed out of the coffin um, and somebody maybe even saw him do that, uh, repossessing, uh, reanimating the body of Father Karras. And then it took him 15 years, ultimately, to get the brain function back and to uh, get all of the parts connecting the way that they needed to be connected. The idea here is that souls are moving from one body into the next body and then reanimating the body. And that raises all kinds of questions as to what then do we, how do we, what do we say about this person? What do we say about Karis now who is sitting in front of Dr. Kinderton? Is he alive? Is he dead? Uh, is he possessed? Is it an illusion? I, those are questions that are so fascinating to me. So what was your take, Scott? I'm... I think I might have misunderstood what was going on. I, I think you explained it more accurately, but I think I liked my misunderstanding more. I misunderstood. What I was thinking happened, basically, is that, um, that the Gemini killer was possessed and Karis was possessed and it and he still is. I mean that this that the devil is is lying that there you know it's not really the Gemini killer's soul. I never that that thought I think you're probably right that that's what the movie was saying, but that thought didn't occur to me. The whole time I'm just thinking, ah, it's just the devil or a demon or something for both of them. I don't think so because of the strong implication of that we're actually seeing the Gemini killer's face. Yeah, I talk. think you're right. I just thought I just didn't that didn't occur to me until you explained it. Yeah. Is that the way you understand it too, Scott? The way I explained it? You mean I mean, Danny? sorry, Danny. Yeah, yeah, that's the way I understood it. So with that in mind then, let me come back to the original question. Let me just let, let me just lay this out there as a as a theological philosophical question. If Karis if this body is co-inhabited by Karis and by the Gemini killer, I'll tell you what it reminded me of. Do you remember in Get Out when the conscience of whatever the guy's name was, was there. He saw what was happening. He knew what was happening, but he couldn't do anything about it because he was pressed down into, what was that place called? The other or the nether? The dark or the, place. Or the dark place or whatever. But he was aware of what's going on. It's just he's powerless. That's the way I understood Karis in this because Jim and I, killer loved the fact that Karis was helpless and he just had to watch and he was being tormented by this but Karis was there just enough once father morning really encouraged him it, again just like get out when they saw a flash was it a flash yeah is that yeah where he was able to just gain consciousness just quick enough to tell kinderman to shoot him now he's released right so if that's the case, then philosophically, why can't we say 
that is this is Karis alive or is the Gemini killer alive? Are they both alive in one body? How would we understand that? And how does the movie understand that? And the movie, of course, doesn't. I'm sure it's not going to this level. But to me, that's incredibly fascinating. If there's a dual possession in an original body, because there's no question it was Karis's body, uh, how, what would you say about that person? Well, I how think would, it, I, I mean, I, I do think that Karis is there. You know, he hasn't gone away onto the, you know, onto purgatory. He hasn't, um, he hasn't departed. I mean, he's, he's sort of trapped. He's in there. And yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think the Gemini is there too, but he's the dominant one. He's, he's dominating. And then only until the end when Karis musters the strength to sort of become lucid again and, and then, you know, ask Kinderman to shoot him so he can be released. But here's my, here's my question, Scott. Then is it appropriate to say that Karis died in 1973? Well, did you notice the tombstone said it did? Yeah, I know. Yeah. When, I, when, that, when that scene originally came up, I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to put Karis dead in 1990. This is going to be unbelievable that they're consistent. But no, that's not what it said. It, <laughs> says, it said 73, which then raises all of the questions. Was he really dead if his soul was still intact with his body? Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He didn't. I, yeah. Something like that. I mean, he, he didn't he didn't quite die <laughs> or he did or he did. I mean, you know, we don't know exactly. It's a mystery, right? We don't know. Right. Does sure. it does it take do, does your soul leave instantly or maybe could it be around for 30 seconds? And then in that in that interval, um, the Gemini somehow comes comes into him, which is not explained how how that could be. But uh, yeah, I think he was still still there. So so in a sense, Karis died or didn't you know didn't quite die. He was in sort of on the fence, and then the Gemini comes in. They're both there. Well, what you just said is exactly how Gemini explained it. That there was this kind of very slight delay, <laughs> right, <laughs> from from the soul leaving the body that gave him just enough time to kind of slip in there and ruin the whole thing, which is just bizarro because. It basically says that the Lord does not have ultimate authority as to what's happening with these souls, right? right. So, unfortunately, Karis now just can't get out, right. which d- doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But now we are, but you know, we're thinking intelligently about these movies, yes. even though sometimes we press them farther than the movie ever wants us to go. And I and I know that that's good. Danny, any input here, or are we just being stupid? Uh, I have no input on this. Uh, I- I'll let you guys handle the theology part of it, but uh, I was just thinking how much in popular fiction, how many two minds in one body stories I've encountered over the years. Hmm. Uh, yeah. There's a famous Frank Herbert, the guy wrote Dune. He wrote a book called The Man of Two Worlds with his son, which is about a, 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 a human intelligence and an alien intelligence. There's a run of Spider-Man where Doc Ock is in Peter Parker's body and Peter Parker's having to just go along for the ride. Um, it's, it's it's everywhere. Yeah, and I think I always like it. There, uh, DC has a superhero Firestorm who has two two minds in one body. Um, I, I think it's always been an, an interesting uh, thing for me. It's absolutely fascinating, and it's incredibly important from a Christian worldview. And you know, Scott, one of the reasons it's important is because it has incredible implications on the person of Christ. So when Christ dies, what happens? That is an extremely important question if we're going to affirm the 100% humanity of Christ, which we have to in his incarnation, and yet we know that he is a divine person. So the divinity, the divine nature of Christ cannot die, does not perish, that's impossible, because God cannot be other than what God is. So no part of God, and God is not made of parts, but for the simplicity here, the, the second person of the Trinity cannot die. And yet Jesus Christ does die, and his soul goes to Sheol, as we might say, the place of the dead. And what's happening there? And what's happening with his body while his soul? So whenever I begin to see these kinds of things where souls and bodies, the integral part of the movie involves the combination of the body and the soul, that's incredibly fascinating to me because it does have important spiritual implications for a Christian worldview. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the Gospels help us because in this, because 
you know, at his moment of death, it, the gospel writer says, and he, you know, he gave up his spirit. You know, he, he, uh, you know, his spirit left. So we know we know it happened at that time. That you know, it's it's not one of these Karis possibilities that there's this interval. Um, but yeah, right. I mean, it, it, anytime you're starting to talk about what is a human, body, soul, mind, consciousness, interaction. It, yeah, you're right. It does have interesting Christological implications because we do confess the true humanity of of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just sort of a, um, appearing to be a human or some sort of a you know mixture or something. He was he was God in the flesh. Well, it, it, you start talking about person and nature, which you have to begin to think through as you're thinking about Christology, one divine person, two natures, a divine nature or a human nature, right? But yeah. then you begin asking questions that, again, that movies, this is one of the reasons I love horror movies, no other genre can begin to pull these kinds of questions out from something that is so incredibly important. In the garden, Jesus says, praying to the Father, not my will, but your will, <laughs> right? What does that mean? Because <laughs> we, we know there can be no confusion in the will of the one God. That, that simply cannot happen. And yet, uh, there seems to be a distinction of ideas as to what might be best here. And so you play, this begins to say, well, where does the will go? Do you place the will in the person or do you place the will in the nature? right? And that then has implications for how we think about ourselves. We are human beings. Uh, we have, we're, we're called persons, but we also have a nature about us. What makes up a human being? All of those questions uh, are important as we look to Jesus Christ and as we think about ourselves. And they're becoming even more important in a culture where personhood is under incredible attack, and we don't even know what that necessarily means. We're very confused about the nature of personhood. And that's why people have got to be watching Exorcist 3 in order to answer these. <laughs> right, right. Or at least ask the question. It has all the answers. <laughs> at least makes you think about them in a way that's fun. Well, let's get to, let's get back to getting scared uh, let's talk about this scene in the hospital now this is william peter blatty's only this is his directorial debut and his only the only movie he directed right isn't that's, i think that's right that's right I think so so danny maybe you're out of the three of us best to answer this like he's obviously been around the motion picture industry, he, he, he understands probably the concepts, but nevertheless, you know, when you're, it's your first time behind a camera and you're trying to do something as intense as what is happening in Exorcist 3, how does he set up this shot in, in what can only be described as perfection? I mean, in many ways, it is perfection. Does he have a host of people helping him? Are we to thank the cinematographer for this more than the director? And we'll set up the scene in just a minute. But if, if we can just see it through Blatty's perspective, how does he land such a grand slam with this scene having never directed a film before? And maybe it's an unfair question. I don't know. But no, let's, let, let's work through it. I do want to say that Blatty actually directed a film called The Knot Configuration. Okay. Another horror film uh, in ten years earlier in nineteen eighty, so he had some experience behind the counter. Um, I don't know he's a horror writer, right? He understands what gets under people's skin. Uh, the film, the film, the scene that we're referring to, the, uh, the hallway uh, scissor scene, I guess we'll call it, um, is pretty straightforward, right? It it builds it builds off of an earlier jump scare. It's it's slow moving. It, it builds its tension through uh, a little bit of the creepy situation we're in because that hospital is a really, really. I would not want to stay a night in that hospital. I'm not sure where they filmed that thing, but it was not a, a friendly looking hospital. Um, it it's it's just we've already had all this tension from death everywhere. We know people are under threat, uh, and then it's basically a really visually arresting jump scare is what it comes down to. It's a jump scare that is you know, one of the most unique images that I can think of in, in horror film uh, with those giant autopsy scissors coming across the hallway at the, at the uh, nurse. Uh, I don't know. I, I, Blatty 
seems like someone who probably could have pulled off directing some more successful horror films going forward. It's weird that he it's weird that he did one, did another ten years later, and never touched the camera again. That's what I'm thinking. Like, why doesn't he? He continued to write some screenplays, so I don't know. I feel the same way about Fred Decker, right? I, he had one bomb, but he's so good, and he never got the chance again. It just, it, it just is that was that his first name, Fred? Fred Decker, the guy who did you know all the classic stuff. Um, it's, it's hard getting old, guys. I don't know who you're talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. You do. Um, but I will say, while you're looking it up, uh, the most famous case of this I know is Charles Lawton, the actor. He made Night of the Hunter, which could possibly be the best film ever made. Like, it is in the running as one of the best American films, and he never made another film. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, Fred Decker, I was right. Uh, Night of the Creeps and Monster Squad. Oh, okay, yeah. Two two of my favorite, you know, you can't beat these things. And then he ends up making, oh, it's RoboCop 3! He made RoboCop 3. He was kind of on a roll. The movie was such a bomb, and that was basically it. Wow. I mean, he, he... he ends up doing a couple of other things, but they, he just never gets back into horror or anything. And I remember thinking, what a, what a well, waste. That is, In, a, that is a waste considering I also think RoboCop 3 is better than people treat it as. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> but here's here's about this scene. Here's what, man, I, I can't wait to hear from you, Scott, on this because maybe you'll have a completely different take. But what I found so compelling about this scene is that we hear all the time, and maybe your, your average just horror movie goer, who's not looking for some of the details that we might be looking for. They're really looking for, did it scare me or not? Did it? Did I get the jump scare? Sometimes what we refer to it as. And you can find directors who are just looking for that. It, it's all dependent on the, the score and the scene. So case in point, The Ring. Okay, Probably one of the most scary moments of my life was when in The Ring, the mom says, uh, I saw her face, and then it cuts to the closet. Remember, and do you guys remember that in the ring? I remember oh, yeah, being scared by it, but I don't. I'm, I'm not picturing that. The guy. girl with the the rictus face. That's a, yeah, in the yeah. closet. Oh yeah. It's yeah. Probably, oh yeah. Like yeah. the scariest yeah. visual image of any. I don't. Yes. I don't even sure if that's up for debate. Like that. Yes. <laughs> but but there but there was no. It was it was cheap. It was there was no reason to think we were getting ready to get taken to a closet. It was just no. instant. A huge score. You know. <laughs> And, the, and there she was. It was very good. It scared us. But I don't know. On this thing, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just getting chill bumps talking about it. You, the scene is established for how long? How long would you say that the, the camera does not move? Three or four minutes, maybe? She comes forward, and, and we're using the depth of field perfectly. There's a cracked hospital door. You think maybe that's where the problem's going to be. The nurse comes forward towards the camera. She does go into the room, and as Danny has already alluded to, there's kind of a, a fun scare there that we get. But then we're right back to the same scene, looking down the corridor. She goes back to the nurse's station. And this is the moment for me right here that was so brilliant. I'm telling you, that without this right here, this scene does not work as well. Police show up. Right. Cops, security guards, whatever, come in and sit down. In the shot, where they're in the background, but they're right next to the nurse, and so and it actually lasts long enough that the cops leave, and there's no cops for a bit, and yeah. then they come, and then they come back and, and sit down, and they're like reading the paper or whatever, and you've already had the little bit of a scare, and you're just like things are okay. I mean, there's police officers and there's, we're, we're far enough away from the nurse. There's no way anything could happen without us having enough distance between us and the problem where it could be scary. Now, somebody does come and get the cop right before she goes to a room who's still very far away from us in the shot. We're halfway into the, you know, the, the depth of field. And then whammo i mean it's just you think there's no way i could be scared right here and i like the kindle i almost dropped the kindle <laughs> out, out of my hand i was so scared by the scene and i just paused it and i said this is the hor- this is the way horror is supposed to be done it's a jump scare which is what everybody's looking for and yet it combined it morphed it was blended in with such a beautiful cinematic masterpiece in those three or four minutes 
I, I don't know if I've seen anything in a long, long time that I thought was more well done than those four or five minutes of that scene. Scott, what do you think? Man? I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, uh, well, I knew it was coming so because I've, I've seen it before. And even though I saw, saw the whole movie a while back, I've, I've seen this scene in, on YouTube more than once. Okay. So I knew it was coming. I didn't, it wasn't clear enough in my head that I knew exactly when it was coming. So I'm, so I'm literally glued to my laptop watching this and I said, it's going to happen. And then she, and then something else happens. And, and so the suspense was killing me. Now I think, and then it happens. Then this ghoul comes out of the room with the, with those giant shears right at her head. And it is, it is gripping. Now I think if I'd never seen this movie before and didn't know it was going to happen and just kind of felt the suspense building, I think I would have had a heart attack. Yeah. But I knew it was coming, so so it wasn't quite, you know. I mean, I it didn't have maybe the same impact, but it's still sure, very, sure. very, very solid. Yeah, well, I, re- I remember yeah. seeing this the first time, and it really being one of the scares that you know, you know one of those great scares from my horror you know memories. Uh, but I've rewatched this film dozens of times, and I know the scene's coming, and it is just the right length and it's it's paced so perfectly that it gets me every time not to the extent obviously that it did once but uh, it's just, it is brilliantly paced and phil was talking about the depth of field what other scares of that nature do you remember that were in like a secondary plane like it's not right up next to the camera it's away from you and it still works it does, and uh-huh. he zooms. He zooms yeah. in on it yeah. as the action is happening, but still, that it's like it's an actual, you know, uh, digital zoom, right? It uh, is. It not, is. It's a digital. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's like something you would have in like a uh, Adobe Pro Director thing, right? Or something. It's, yeah, it's not. It's it's not a tracking shot. It's, it's it's not a dolly shot. It's an act. It's it's in camera. The camera yeah. is absolutely stationary. I mean, it's not even. Yeah, it's not even on a dolly track. It's just. I don't know. I I can't say because that was the first time i had seen it and i don't know how in the world i mean danny you i've never even thought about the movie exodus 3 like you mentioned it you loved it we should watch it i've never even given this film a second thought i'm not a big sequel guy anyway i've heard part two is horrible so i haven't even given the rest of the uh sequels a second thought but i'm just i love horror how have i not heard that this is one of the greatest scenes of all time. Like I knew nothing about it, so I rewatched it before I even finished the film. I rewatched the scene like three times. I just like I, I can't believe how good this is. So then I go and Google it, and sure enough, it's on all these. It gets talked about lists, you know. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. talked about. So I don't know how I've missed it. I don't know how I didn't know any. But I knew nothing, zero, nothing about the scene when I watched it last night. And it's the it's the it's the best scare that I've received maybe in my life uh, Be, other than the ring. Being an old man helps me because I saw this in the theater and you know when it came out because I was a huge Exorcist fan and um, and I hey, I really enjoyed Exorcist too. I know now that it is terrible. Like <laughs> I saw it again as an adult and went oh wow that's really bad. But um, I loved the Exorcist films. I saw this in the theater and that scene I mean absolutely maybe the 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 most scared i've ever been in a theater and scared is kind of because it doesn't last right the most briefly shocked by horror that i've been in a theater but i'll I'll tell you another i'll tell you another scene that got me uh we haven't talked about it yet but the when the original when the first priest is killed in the confession booth and he's taking the confession of what sounds like uh, an elderly lady and her voice continues to get higher in pitch and until you realize, okay, she's psychotic, and then she starts laughing at the fact that she had killed. Uh, it was the, of course, it's it a Gemini, Gemini killer. killer. Yeah, it was a Gemini killer who possessed whoever it was that she had possessed. And that voice and the whole that whole scene reminded me a little bit of the scene in It Too, when she goes to the her old apartment or her old house, and the mm, woman brought yeah. out cookies, and they sit down, and she starts talking, and there's just that. Oh, this isn't good, you know. And then it finally climbed. That's what it reminded. I, that scene really got me as well. Yeah. I, I like the uh, as long as we're talking about scenes that work. I think uh, the when he sends the when the Gemini killer sends the uh, 
the uh, elderly woman in the nurse's outfit to uh, to the policeman's house, mm-hmm. and uh, the daughter almost gets beheaded. I think that scene works really, really well. Again, going back to my ideal that anyone was fair game, it would not have surprised me for the daughter's head to get lopped off in that scene. Yeah, yeah I, I wrote down three scares I, on my notes. I said, in the you know, the first one, which is a doozy, one of the scariest moments in all horror cinema, I wrote. And then the, for the second one, the old woman crawling on the ceiling. Now, I've actually, we've seen that in other movies where there's something crawling on the ceiling, a person crawling on the ceiling or whatever, and the person, people down below don't know it's there. But it, but it was it was good. It was It was really scary. And my third one was what Danny just said: the when the possessed catatonic nurse person just tried to decapitate the daughter and almost did. Uh, yeah, I kind of I, I think I was pretty startled at that moment. You know, when the patient was climbing on the ceiling, I'm just now thinking. I'm trying to remember this now. Was that during? Had she just killed somebody? She had just killed the uh, one of the nurses. Yeah. She had. So she was still under possession at that moment. And I believe the nurse is like, it, there's a, it was actually kind of odd. Wasn't the nurse like just in panties? Yeah. Like when they yeah, cut to the yeah. body, that was, that, that seems like probably something was cut from the movie, right? Because that's mm, weird. Yeah. That, uh, But yeah, she had, she crawled out of the room so that they wouldn't see her. But yeah, uh, I think that's, that, that's one of the ones from the theater that really got me. Yeah, because she was moving so fast. Yeah, a little bit out yeah. of time signature. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's pretty well done, too, by the way, to have her in fast motion, but you're still people in regular motion in the scene. So it's a composite shot, I, I mm-hmm. assume. And it was done. It was, it, 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 I think it still looks good. Yeah, I mean, we, this is 1990, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we had not yet. And a very low budget. We're, we're kind of ignoring the fact that The Exorcist was a. You know, a tent pole picture, a lot of studio money behind it, famous people behind it. Uh, this movie was made with a shoestring budget that, that barely got financed because it was, you know, an Exorcist movie. Because Heretic did so poorly, bombed so bigly at, at the box office. I said bigly, uh, bombed so big at the box office. Uh, been watching too much of that uh, Twitter Twitter comedian, uh, but. Uh, yeah, the, uh, so he did this with a really low budget, and it looks low budget at times. The cinematography is not the quality of The Exorcist, for, or even The Exorcist 2, which is a beautiful film. Uh, it's, it looks like a low budget movie, but he did a lot with that budget. It's got some very effective scenes. Yeah, great. Absolutely. And it kind of looks like a uh, William Friedkin movie. Like, it looks like it was made in the 70s. It's got a very... I don't know, like the, the I don't know the film stock decision they made or so, something about it makes it just seemed like it was a, an older film than 1990. Well, what you well, know, I, yeah. I mentioned this when we talked about The Exorcist, but uh, you know, it's a small thing, but to me, it really it's, it it always kind of strikes me. All the doctors and nurses in this movie are smoking, you know, in the hospital, in their office. And I, maybe they were still doing that in 1990, but it, it just, it, that, you know, it's almost like now if I see someone walking around without a mask, I, it kind of makes me kind of, you know, step back. Well, you know, in this film where they're all, that's what makes it look like it's in the 70s to me is when it something. Yeah, like that's that. fair. Oh, but, I totally yeah. agree. I wrote that down. We haven't raised that up. I don't think so, brother. In 1990, they weren't smoking in hospitals. Surely I, not. It seems like not, but it, that, but they all were. And, and anyway, whatever. Yeah. yeah, you know, we haven't we haven't mentioned Doctor Temple, or have we? I don't think we did. No. We haven't. That's uh, played by uh, uh, the Walking Dead actor, uh, whose name is leaving me suddenly. Uh, Scott Wilson. Scott Wilson. Yeah. Uh, uh, who is phenomenal in The Walking Dead and I think really good at this also. Yeah, he was he was kind of a he was an odd character, wasn't he? He, he had a to, he in ahead. his office he had a naked centerfold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the hangman, this weird torture kind of thing upside down and chain smoking and always he was holding his cigarette in a very weird way and he always held it that way and he seemed nervous and what did you make of the uh him scripting out what he was going to say to kinderman was i just it's so interesting right because it's it's like this it's a novelist detail i think i think that is 
you know, I don't remember that from the book. It's been a long time since I've read the book, but that seems like a, a, a detail that a, that, you know, a, a writer would put in there, like a, a novelist, not a, a screenplay writer, because it's not necessary and it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movie. As far as I can tell, it's just a little neat character trait. Yeah. But did you, did you think he was intimidated by Kinderman Scott or was it just his personality? He wanted to know exactly what he was going to say. Yeah. It, it just seemed a little bit. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. It's a little OCD. Maybe he's trying to have a lot of control over that moment by memorizing exactly what he's going to say. I, it's hard to explain. It doesn't seem like it, it doesn't really have a, a, a you know, any sort of major uh, delivery to the whole, to the whole plot of the scene. But, but yeah, I noticed that too. And, and, and also when he takes George C. Scott or Kinderman into the wing where Karis is as patient X, they don't know who it is, but he called it the disturbed ward. And again, it, it, that just didn't seem like a 1990 terminology. But yeah, this Temple character, um, I, yeah, I didn't quite know what to make of him. And he killed himself, right? That, that's what yeah. we learned. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't quite know what to make of that. Yeah, I didn't either. Did he kill I, himself because he realized the evil he was up against, or was it an indication of his just whacked out personality and losing control? Or did the Gemini killer get inside of him and force him to overdose? I mean, it's, it, it's but no, but he he doesn't take. Remember, he specifically says he didn't do it, and you and you can't. Oh, okay, you would, he does. You, you wouldn't think that the Gemini killer would be. He wants to take credit for his. No reason to lie. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, um, and of course, I guess we should say this is the Gemini Killer is a spinoff of the real life Zodiac Killer. Do you remember the Zodiac Killer? Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Done it really, really fascinating. You know, they never caught him. And he, I just, <laughs> uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I reread The Dancing Men, which is a Sherlock Holmes short story where Holmes has to decipher a special code that two people came up with that they thought no one would ever be able to decipher. And of course, Holmes does, and he's able then to track down the problem, what's going on. And the Zodiac Killer in real life came up with this own language, and he would send it to the press, you remember? Yeah. And um, the, uh, the press ended up publishing it, and only one of, I think, the four letters he sent that were in this code were ever translated or, or deciphered. And he ends up saying that the Zodiac Killer says, if you can figure out the other messages, you'll know who I am. I've put my identity <laughs> in there. And wow. nobody has ever been able to do it. I mean, it's absolutely, it's the, the, talk about the stuff of fiction. I mean, this stuff is, uh, but it's still, the case is still open. There's still amateur investigators that are all over. It's kind of like the JFK assassination, right? Like people are still trying to figure out what's going on to this thing. Um, but anyway, you could see that in the film a little bit because he talks about he's wanting it to be in the press, right? He, he tells Kinderman, make sure you say it's the Gemini killer. Tell the press what's going on. So there is some overlap of the Zodiac killer in this film. And and, and by the way, there there is the movie Zodiac from 2007, which is, a, I think, an amazing movie. Someday we might want to put that on our list too. If things now, is that about. so that's based off the real life story? I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. So it's called Zodiac 2007. It's got Robert Downey Jr. in it, Jake Gyllenhaal. And a whole bunch of other great actors. It's it's a, in my opinion, a really really good movie. Yeah, and it's based on the the historical actual Zodiac killings. Yeah, so I'm gonna have to go watch that because I'm so yeah. interested in it now. Since I since I kind of researched it a little bit, uh, we're talking about Exorcist. But is the is that movie is it is it a fictionalized version? You know, do they take liberties or is it kind of true to the story? No, I, or do you well, know? I think it's pretty true. Um, yeah, you're following some characters that are fictional. I mean, it's not supposed to be sort of a docudrama. It's it's a it's a dramatization, but I think a lot of the the um, specifics about the killer and so forth are are historic, or, you know, are accurate. As far as I recall, I mean, I, I haven't I haven't watched it seen recently, but what I just remember about it is just how incredibly good the performances are. The movie's really really good. I haven't seen it since it came out, but that's a Fincher film, and I've really liked almost everything David Fincher has done. And I'm thinking we've never done a Fincher film. No, uh, we certainly could. There's a couple of them that would work out pretty well. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. Well, the clock on the wall shows me that we've been going at it for an hour. Anything else you guys want to talk about? 
to wrap up the Exorcist three. Real quickly, there's a ton of really cool uh, actors ca- cameos in the thing. Uh, you've got uh, I don't know if you noticed, but Patrick Ewing, the legendary NBA player, is in that dream sequence. Uh, Larry King, is, I saw Larry is in the restaurant. Yeah. Um, uh, I absolutely am positive that. Uh, on top of Patrick Ewing, I saw, um, oh gosh, the Georgetown coach, um, uh, Thompson. Um, yeah, I, I'm almost positive. He was, he was in there too. Uh, people just kept popping up. Samuel Jackson was in the dream. He was the blind man. Mm-hmm. No kidding. From the, it just, now, it, I saw, uh, everywhere I looked, there was some, uh, Washington DC based, uh, cameo or you know a famous actor cameo well you know i see it I'm oh harry carey jr is in it he's he's the father canavan yeah i see these guys listed on the uh wikipedia page i didn't notice ken Lerner, who i love who's the principal from buffy the vampire slayer uh was dr friedman he uh he's also in mrs clumbo but i don't know that i ever saw an episode of mrs i Columbo. didn't either well that's so. hmm. But yeah. Okay, anything else, Scott, we got? Well, okay, so um, you know the, the one creepy nurse, the really, really, you know, nasty nurse. I can't, I don't remember what the character's name is. It's Nurse Allerton. That's the Nancy Fish one I was talking yeah. about. Yeah, she's great, but she, you know, the really nasty one. Well, when he's talking to her, when Kinderman's talking to her, and he's then he exits her office, and she says, you know, save your servant. And he's yeah. like, he's caught by that, right? And he's like, well, what, what, you know, what do you, what's that? And she says, I don't know, but I heard this patient X, whom we know is Karis, say it or something. And so he goes and looks it up, and he finds that phrase in the Catholic rite of exorcism. Now, yeah. being a liturgical Protestant, I, 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 you know, to me that didn't work, because that phrase, save your servant, is from the Psalms, and it appears a thousand times in a hundred places in liturgical prayers that he's going to pull out that right and find it on one on the page there is like finding a you know a needle in a a stack of needles or something because it's just it's it's just everywhere and so that you know no one else is going to notice that kind of thing but he should he should he should have encountered it a a lot earlier than yeah uh, yeah exactly i mean in 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 sort of catholic mass catholic liturgy uh similar to what lutherans use um, that phrase is frequent so um it's taken from uh, one of the Psalms. So anyway, that struck me as a little bit kind of, and I don't even okay. know why that was there. I mean, why did they even do that scene? That was very weird, especially since George C. Scott's not a lapsed Catholic. He is an actual atheist in the movie, <laughs> though he has two best friends that are, he's been best friends with two priests in his life, but he has, uh, they don't make yeah. any, I don't think they ever suggest that he's a lapsed Catholic, right? Uh, I think you're right. Uh, I, I believe he is presented as an atheist. Uh, so I, I don't know. But he, he managed to go find that. Well, I, I was actually wondering, because I have no, I, I don't have the knowledge you guys have, if if that was a, a legitimate uh, part of the uh, rights of exorcism. Well, you know, the the way that I take that, though, is I, I, think, I, I think I come at that scene maybe from the back door a little bit. I don't, I didn't take it as he heard that phrase, and then he had to figure out where in the world is that coming from. I took it as he heard the phrase. He he knows that that is a spiritual thing, and that Karis was involved in the exorcism in '73. So he goes directly to the book of whatever mm, the, the yeah. exorcism in order to see if the phrase is actually found there. Not that it's exclusive to that or. He, he just so happened to run across it. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, that's, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, sure. So that he went directly to what he was already all, trying to ignore, which is this doesn't have anything to do with what happened in 73 and exorcism. But, but I mean, there, he's like, okay, well, is it though? So then he goes and looks it up, you know. But there are fra- there are a lot of phrases that are in the rite of exorcism that are not found in every other mass. You know, I mean, right. you know, they could have. So why they, didn't they use one of those? You mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is a this is a, said every single Sunday. You know, I mean, it's not a exotic phrase. So it's just to me that just struck me. I mean, I know it's, it's it didn't ruin the movie for me or anything like that. But I just I kept scratching my head. It's like why why did they do that? It didn't make sense. Well, you know, I felt the same way 
maybe not the same way, but when when the Gemini killer mentions that you know we are many, when he yeah. and Kinderman doesn't have any idea, like he has to go find that, and then he reads the passage <laughs> right. out loud, right. and of course, like that's so. That's pretty, co- yeah, pretty common knowledge. Anyone who has any knowledge, not just pastors, I wouldn't think at that point, is going to know uh, that that is a reference to Legion, uh, which I think may have actually been the... The subtitle of the novel and the reissue of the movie was actually Legion. Yeah. Um, I will say real quickly, though, uh, I know, you know Scott didn't like the performance or anything, but the the uh, I love the nihilism of... George C. Scott's I, or the Kinderman's "I believe" speech. Yeah, and, right. What right. is it? I, yeah, I believe, and he just lists all these awful things he believes. And yeah, I, I, I love, and that's one of my favorite things in the movie. Yeah, yeah. So, does uh, what are we to think about Kinderman at the end? Then that's a good way to close out the podcast. Because uh, you're right, that speech turns into a pretty brutal take on humanity and life, which in and of itself has theological uh, connections back to the scriptures and to what's happening in the in the movie. But does he is he a believer? Yeah, he seems like he's a believer, but he he sees it as a bad thing. Right? He, he seems like now he believes there's a God, but he's he's not very happy with what God has done. Hmm. What's your take, Scott? I I mean, because, yeah, because, you know, the demon says, do you believe? And, and George C. Scott says, well, I believe in infidelity and murder and starving right. children. And he lists all this. And then he ends, and I believe in you. So I don't know. I don't know if he's. Blatty is writing these, from my understanding, to try to persuade this materialistic world that, that the spiritual world is real, which implies mm-hmm. the existence of God. But as I saw that scene, George C. Scott doesn't land there. He doesn't quite go there. Yeah, I didn't think so either. And it, it's reminiscent of a scene earlier in the film when he is having a lunch or dinner or whatever with Dyer. And he basically says, right, he, he raises the problem of evil. If there's so much horrible things going on, then what? what's even the use? Like, why is your God even going to remotely be interesting and, and Father Dyer comes back essentially with, well, just, just hang on. You know? yeah, just right. Wait, because there's going to be a consummation of all of this in the end. But that wasn't comforting news for the moment for yeah, Kinderman. Yeah. And we see a little bit of that still lingering at the end of the film, I think. Very cool. Well, thanks as always, guys. This is fun. And thank you for listening. Uh, we hope you're enjoying this. You're enjoying this season where we're talking about films that deal with exorcisms. Uh, we don't know exactly where we're going next week, but we're going to land on another movie. and Or maybe we do. We're going to talk about uh, a Korean film, right? The Priests. Yep. That's what's yes. coming up. That's what we're planning week. to do. Yes. That's what we're planning to do anyway, if, yeah. uh, assuming the creek don't rise or something like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, none of us have seen the movie. And my hunch is you haven't either, if you're listening. So this will be a new one for all of us, and we can talk about that. But we really, really appreciate you listening. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Uh, be sure to subscribe and keep coming back for more. So on behalf of Danny and Scott, we want to say have a great night, stay scared, and we'll see you next week.